It's the Irishman Abroad Big Sunday interview. Dr. Gary O'Toole devoted the first part of his life to becoming the best swimmer he possibly could. He won medals, represented Ireland at the Olympics, won gold at the World University Games and bronze at the European Championships. All the while, he was oblivious to the horrific sexual and psychological abuse being carried out upon dozens of his teammates by the coach in charge of Irish swimming for all those years. Then, in 1990, on a flight to a competition in Australia, one of the assistant coaches, Chalky White, asked Gary if he had been abused like he had. Nothing would ever be the same again. Dr. Gary O'Toole was in his early 20s when he set about gathering together the stories of all the victims he could find so that George Gibney could be imprisoned. What happened next, the courage of those victims and how Gibney evaded jail and skipped the country is covered incredibly well in the podcast where is george gibney if you want to go back and hear my conversation with the man behind that series mark horgan it was recorded about a year ago and it's free to you and available in our feed now today though is all about dr gary o'toole and i have mark horgan to thank for setting up this conversation so thank you mark today uh, gary is a practicing orthopedic surgeon with a specialist interest in adult arthritis both hip and knee and knee sports injuries he took the call with me just after coming from the wards for the day so a, a huge thank you to gary for fitting this in it's the dr gary o'toole episode of an irish man abroad gary o'toole it's brilliant to finally have you on the Irish Man Abroad. I felt like we were cursed there for a moment. Uh, the listeners won't know this, but this is our fourth swing at bat at getting this recording to happen. But it, it, it's an interview that I've wanted to do for so long, Gary, uh, probably before the George Gibney podcast came about, uh, because your name is so connected to two things that uh, have such a checkered past in Irish history, swimming and justice. And when we look at the Gibney story, I wondered, what do you think justice is now? And what is justice in relation to this? And whether your relationship with the sport of swimming has deteriorated as a result? Firstly, Jonathan, thanks very much for the invite uh, to the podcast. I'm a fan of the podcast and uh, listened, that uh, was attracted to it really uh, during COVID. And your trials as a, an athlete uh, always <laughs> chuckles somewhat. Um, but I think that uh, to answer your first question about justice, I think justice is very personal. Uh, I, um, and you're referring to the fact, obviously, that um, we've had three uh, Olympic coaches in succession, all three of whom were charged with uh, child sexual abuse. Only one of them um, escaped on appeal. The other two that used the same appeal mechanism were, were sentenced to... Uh, uh, incarceration uh, for different different periods of time. One of them is out now living a, a, as a free man somewhere in Ireland and, and one has since uh, died. But for me, the justice was uh, that the uh, people who George Gibney abused were uh, finally recognized to a, a wider audience than previously would have known about their, um, uh, their troubles uh, and mm. uh, their sufferings. I think that was in some way uh, justice for for this period of time. I think that 
if you were to get uh, a victim of George Gibney and a victim of Daryl O'Rourke and a victim of uh, Jared Doyle in the same room at the same time, talking about whether they feel any different now, all these years later, because one of the or two of the perpetrators had been sent to prison and one of them had not been sent to prison. I think that they would all feel the same way about their abuse and how they suffered at the hands of the coach. And for me to comment on what they think as justice would be a little bit uh, unfair and offside of me. But do I think that George Gibney um, has been served justice? Well, not in the eyes of the courts here in Ireland. I don't think justice was served, but I think that he lives a life in exile and uh, forever known and now more widely known thanks to the Second Captain's podcast as as an abuser. Um, whereas Dario Rourke now is out of the public eye, has served his time and is free to roam uh, in his home country. I don't mm. know where he is, uh, but so justice varies uh, from different perspectives. Um, and being an advocate uh, for the people that were abused by George Gibney uh, puts me in a very different category to the victims of George Gibney. And I wouldn't for a second uh, think that what I would perceive as justice would be what they might perceive as justice. Uh, and I think sure. everyone has their own individual thoughts on, on that. Well, I guess, as regard, uh, sorry, yeah, as regard to my association with the, with the swimming association, well, when I finished at the Olympic games in 92, um, um, I decided that I couldn't really go in pursuit of George Gibney and try and out him as a child abuser. Um, whilst being outside the sport of swimming. Mm. So I swam on for two years uh, during the initial um, research and um, knocking on doors of uh, potential victims. And I only retired in 1994. But when I retired in 1994, I was certainly persona non grata within the swimming association. I think that took many, many years uh, uh, for it to uh, quell. The Irish Amateur Swimming Association, as it was in my day, was uh, disbanded as a result of the uh, George Gibney and Derry O'Rourke uh, child sexual abuse cases and uh, was reincarnated as Swim Ireland. And I think that the, the people that were involved with Swim Ireland at the start uh, looked at me as a little bit of uh, an agitator um, uh, because when you're so involved with the sport and you're so close to the sport, you you tend not to see the wood for the trees and that you get so ultra competitive and uh, get so focused on either your child or someone else uh, uh, swimming so well that you forget that this is a sport at the end of the day and it's supposed to be a healthy environment uh, for people uh, to be able to um, grow up in. <clears throat> and I felt that there was an awful lot of people there that were still involved in Swim Ireland that were involved in the IASA when I was a, um, a member of that association uh, that um, that really didn't uh, appreciate, uh, in inverted commas, the work that I had done and felt that I had uh, just been a thorn in their side. Um, I hope they've changed their minds. I think that uh, they, they will be... Uh, judged um, harshly uh, and have been judged harshly by the podcast that came out uh, later mm. on. So I don't have any relationship with uh, with Swim Ireland. I follow from a distance uh, the swimmers and their times. I look in awe at what they can achieve now. But I myself uh, still swim uh, two or three times a week. 
and uh, I still love the sport of swimming. I, I, I still am I'm completely in love with the feeling that I get when I go to a swimming pool. It's quite addictive. I'll be uh, first to recognize that. And it's what I do best. And it still makes me feel good about myself. Um, it, it, and as a person yourself now that's getting those endorphin uh, yeah. uh, in, infusions from your uh, participation in sport um you can see where i'm coming from um so 100 percent carry but like yeah, you know what I, I i i haven't had a traumatic experience in connection with athletics my experience with athletics and sport now is predominantly you know sonia sullivan introducing this thing into my life that i thought i could never do and feeling the joy as you say the rush of endorphins the runner's high and as you say the addictive quality of it now were i to experience what you had in connection with that activity i'm not sure that i could go back running i can't i couldn't say that for sure but i wonder did it take time for you to heal in that way was there a period when pools chlorine the smell the sound of the place had a certain post-traumatic stress for you um, i'd have to be honest and say yes there was a period of time there was a period of time about two years uh, when i didn't swim i i didn't swim at all um and i kind of regret that now looking back uh, that i that i uh, i didn't just keep it going but i hated everything that uh, was to do with the sport uh, and um I think that uh, for many years after I finished swimming, um, I uh, retained some sponsorship deals and that necessitated me going to uh, some organized swimming get-togethers, I once called them swimming competitions. Um, And that kept me in for a period of time. But then when I started uh, working um, uh, as a doctor, things got so busy and unfortunately that was the first thing that I dropped. And... um, when I got back into it again, after being out for two years, um, I quickly realized, you know, that I, I do still love the sport of swimming mm. and that I was letting my judgment of the sport of swimming be clouded by people who were involved in a part of the sport of swimming that I was no longer involved with. Yeah. So it was, um, it, it was a bit of a lesson uh, for me. And, um, you know, I was, I remember I was, um, I was cycling one night um, on a stationary bike and I was listening to you when you were going through your stress fracture period and the frustration in your voice as you were going from one physio to another and then you were cautiously being uh, rehabilitated back into the sport of running. And I I could, I was laughing to myself and I I was saying, you know, here's here's a guy that... um, you know, is never going to be an Olympian, is never going to be a, a world ch- a championship competitor. And yet he is taking it as serious as I would have done when <laughs> I was at that up level. Mm. And the frustration in your voice was palpable. But that that's what came across to me. And it did make me laugh because you had been bitten. You were completely addicted mm. to this. And it was when it was taken away from you, not on your terms, that was so upsetting. If you had walked away from it, you wouldn't have been so obsessed. But because it was robbed from you and you were told you cannot do this, then all of a sudden it becomes the most important thing in your life. And that's 
what swimming was for me. And I walked away from it. So I wasn't so upset for the two years, but I was upset at myself when I went back again, because uh, I realized, you know, this is, this is good for you. This, this is what keeps you sane. And to this day now, um, I've been swimming uh, and known how to swim now, uh, for over 50 years. Uh, and, um, it's just great. So, yeah, I just go back to it and I see what I get out of swimming. And when I listen to Sonia talk about when she runs, I can appreciate where she's coming from. And sometimes when I say stuff about swimming, people are looking at me saying, yeah, we'll give them that. We'll just nod and just walk away and we'll go, <laughs> what a fruitcake. And I can appreciate sometimes that when you're talking to Sonia, that at that level, when you're that far removed from the competitive nature of the sport to be still so effusive about the sport can sometimes sound quite disturbing to people who haven't been bitten. And that's, mm. that's, a, that's a roundabout way yeah. of saying, yes, I, I did regret my time when I wasn't doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're, you're also hinting at the running bores there that people know all about all too well, who just, uh, you know, people can't connect with because they, they, they seem to be hooked on something that's yeah. from another planet. Uh, you know, mm. your idealism had to be part of what drove you to take Chalky up on the challenge to do something. You had an idealistic belief that you can fix this, uh, not fix it, but on some level, you can change things and at least attempt to put a stop to this. Where do you trace your idealism from, or would you agree that there was an idealistic Gary O'Toole from day one? Well, I think that it's a heavy question, but I think that uh, when uh, Jockey confided in me, uh, he just needs someone to talk to and he just needed to say it out loud and uh, for someone uh, to be a sounding board, I, I don't think, and I might be wrong here, I don't think it would have made an awful lot of difference to him if I had said nothing um, and just said and nodded and just walked away and left him to deal with it on his own. Uh, but it, from my upbringing and from uh, my teachers and people that I had encountered uh, throughout uh, my school, um, I had a very strong sense of right and wrong. That may be a strange thing to say, but I realized what had happened to him was wrong and that he was suffering as a result of that. And I didn't do it uh, because um, Chalky asked me to do it or I didn't do it because, um, you know, Chalky had been uh, uh, wronged, but I realized that the whole system was being facilitatory towards this monster uh, that was continuing that behavior as we spoke and that was wrong and I wanted to stop that and mm. by upping that um, you had to go back and acknowledge the past and acknowledge the historical cases of child sexual abuse that this man had perpetrated and to do that the only way to acknowledge that was through the uh, the court system and that's what I did that's what I tried to do and I tried to engage with the uh, legal system in Ireland and uh, encouraged all of his victims to partake in that um, uh, system, uh, which in the end it itself uh, 
let them down. But that's it. Just came down to a simple choice of what's right and what's wrong. Mm. And I. I'd like to say that I fast forwarded uh, 30 years and said, you know, how would you feel in 30 years time if you didn't do this? That wasn't the way it was at all. And I now live my life like that. Um, I learned that what I did could have been summed up very, very simply by how will you feel in X amount of time? And in my world of medicine now, we have this very simple test called uh, the walk home test, and it can apply to any uh, 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 field of work. And it, I always remember it one night, um, we had a very busy night in a hospital in New York, and um, we had operated on a young uh, child. I'll give you his first name, Yehuda. And we had operated on him 48 hours earlier, and we were walking home uh, down First Avenue at about uh, uh, it must have been one thirty or 2 a.m. And we'd finished in the operating room about an hour previous. And we'd gone around to see the patients that we'd operated on that day. And I was walking down First Avenue with my uh, boss and mentor, uh, Patrick Boland. And we were about uh, we were about 500 meters down First Avenue. And he said, oh, we never checked on Yehuda today. Did you round on him this morning? And I said, no, I didn't round on him this morning. And he, and he said, oh, okay. And he kept on walking and I stopped. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, we've got to go back. He says, what are you talking about? He said, well, we've just failed the walk home test and come back to me. And I said to my mentor, I said, if you walk home now, how long will it take you to get to sleep wondering how Yehuda is? Hmm. He said, I probably won't sleep. And I said, well. We go walking back now, it'll take us another 20 minutes, but you will see him, be satisfied that he's okay, go home, sleep well, and then um, you will have done the right thing. And so let's walk back. So that's an example of something that doesn't pass the walk home test. So in surgery or in medicine, if you're driving home in your car at nighttime after operating or seeing patients, and you're thinking about a patient and you think, maybe I should have done this. Well, you should have done it. <clears throat> so the ability to fast forward a couple of hours is an important way of looking at things. And whether that's hours or as in the case of Chalky and the child sexual abuse victims, whether it be 20 or 25 years down the line when you have children yourself, well, it's a great way to look at life. And that's what I do now. Yeah, you were, you were in your 20s. This is this is the other thing that people can't believe, right? You must get asked this all the time, Gary. In fact, I've probably seen multiple people ask you this question about, you know, maturity ahead of your years and being us all thinking of ourselves at 20, 21 years old and how we, we don't usually have the walk-home test in our mind's yeah. eye. I wondered about if we could slow down kind of that trajectory of telling the, this side of it or talking through it, how much the earth shifting on its axis like hurt you or um, sent your mind swimming. Because when Jockey is saying these things to you on the plane to Australia, you've said that the dots suddenly connected between your experience with George Gibney as an 11-year-old boy homesick in the States when he tried to get into your bed. Uh, the, the, next, the next period of your life must have been 
you know, the most awful period of all, because it's before, as you say, you've taken the action and you're now at the wheel. Can you tell us a little bit about exactly how out on your feet, uh, out of control or that just this, I can't even imagine the sense of how you saw the world through your eyes at that point, getting off that plane. Um, getting off that plane, remember, we, we were now in uh, Perth in uh, Western Australia and had to compete in the uh, World Championships. And uh, George Gibney was the head coach uh, and Chalky White was the assistant coach. Um, so I had to go to training sessions every single day, knowing what I knew about him. But actually, it was quite easy to ignore him for that period of time and just keep your head down and just do what you're told. Uh, that, that was quite easy. And then I left his swimming club and I moved to, to the States for a year, actually. Um, and when I came back from the States and uh, started to work, uh, you know, and, and Chalky was always aware of what I was doing, I, I was angry. I was, I was very angry at um, Gibney uh, for what he had done. But I was particularly uh, angered by how he had behaved when I was competing at the Olympic Games in Barcelona, that he had the gall to go on national TV and um, be very insulting towards me. But what he was trying to do was trying to break me as a person and make sure that when I came back, if I ever said anything bad about him, it would be viewed as sour grapes. Um, mm. and that I was trying to, um, undermine his credibility by telling lies about him. And he, he you know, he was full sure I was going to do something because I had told him, uh, why I was le leaving him and he knew exactly, you know, why I was un uncomfortable in his presence. Um, so he, he knew that I would, if anyone was going to do something, it was going to be me. So he tried his damnness to, to, to essentially ruin me. Um, but then when I came back, he, he empowered me really because he made me angry enough, uh, personally. And then I was angry enough, uh, on the victim's behalf to get up and get, go and do something. Mm. And the other thing was I had absolutely nothing to lose. Um, and people were telling the truth about his, uh, his, uh, abusive behavior. I believe them. I believe that he was, uh, Gibney was responsible for an awful lot of friendships within my swimming club that had broken down as he abused either party within that friendship and then isolated them from their, their, their friends. And I could see a pattern and, I, and it was very easy to see once it had been pointed out to you, but if it's not pointed out to you, it's, it's very hard to see. It's like the where's Wally picture, you know, when you see Wally. And when someone points him out, he say, of course, I can see him now. He's as plain as day. He sticks out. Mm. But when it wasn't pointed out to people, it wasn't very clear. So I wasn't worried about my reputation. I wasn't worried about my house. I wasn't worried about my family or my children. I had nothing to lose. I was actually in the perfect position to do what I did. And people have been very kind and very nice about, you know, what I did, you know, when I was 22 years of age. I said, I was 22. I didn't really know what I was doing. Would I behave the same fashion now, uh, you know, in my early fifties as I was when I, it, as I did in my early twenties, I would hope so. But now I have so much more to lose if I was to go out on the limb like that. So it was serendipity, if you want to use that, that word. Um, and it was just a case of encouraging people to come forward. So 
I was pushing an open door for, for, for a lot of the victims because they had had time to come to terms with it and they wanted to do something about it too. So mm. it was very lucky in some respects, very lucky indeed. So for those people that don't know about when you say he tried to ruin me and you know the deviousness of how he criticized you at the Olympics in 1992, you didn't have the performance you wanted to have. It just didn't go your way. I think you slipped at one point coming off the blocks and he basically lays the boot in, right, as a pundit. And you believe that it was to engineer the characterization of you as a sour grapes merchant. That's exactly true. So he, he, he was the person who was on the expert panel um, on his own uh, with uh, the late Bill O'Hurley, who was presenting the program. And um, it was a case of, so say if I performed the 100 meters breaststroke in a certain time, he, he would just sit back in the chair and say, it was absolutely awful. I mean, there's just no way that he's good enough to be uh, representing Ireland in the Olympic Games. He should be embarrassed uh, with his performance how he uh, ever found himself in that position, I'll never know. Uh, this is the problem that we have. He took his foot off the gas. He's not training. He didn't train hard enough. Um, he's an embarrassment. All of this stuff was, was said in National Airways and left unchallenged as well, because there wasn't anyone else there to act as a foil. Mm. And uh, it, it was it, it, it was very hurtful, not for me, who was in Barcelona, because I was hurting because, you know, my first race uh, where there was no full starts, I uh, slipped, came up and was behind the, behind the field. And that's not making excuses in terms of my performance. It's just that um, I didn't actually pay attention to what was going on here. But my mother was here and, uh, and uh, you know, my close family were here. And uh, they were listening to this and getting very upset by it all. And it was just so that when, if I ever came back and said something bad about him, that people would say, well, the depths that he has uh, gone to now to try and take revenge on George Gibney, it's quite incredible. But I knew that's what he was doing. So it, 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 yeah. it didn't bother me. I was upset uh, for my family and my family and friends, uh, but. I would expect no less of them, really. But it must have hinted at how manipulative he was and uh, that you, for the first time, were kind of seeing this kind of dirty, murky side to the man that uh, did that at all. Like, I, I, I struggle to use the term evil, right? I, I've always struggled with the concept of some people are evil. Uh, I think even Eamon Dunphy said it to me once on the show that he believes in evil, that there are evil people in the world. And I, I just don't know what to do with that. But then when you really look at the case and you look at the, the individual here, there must be part of you, Gary, that does that does believe in that, that believes that this is that yeah, kind well, of person. He um, was a sick individual. Uh, you know, uh, I think pedophilia is a, a, a psychiatric illness uh, that uh, is well recognized and um, uh, um, thankfully uh, remains illegal in uh, societies such as ours. Um, 
we need to protect the the young and the vulnerable uh, people, and uh, that's the people that they prey upon. Are people that prey upon young, vulnerable individuals that can't make decisions for themselves evil? Well, I think that is a term that could be used to describe them. I I think that uh, the episode in my life that you picked upon in Barcelona um, and the manipulative nature of the man, he, he was a, 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 it was like as if he was uh, positioning uh, pieces on a chessboard. Mm. You know, and he didn't mind taking a few hits if it meant that he would end up with his king at the end of the game. So he he thought that I would come back and try and have a go at him, uh, but he didn't know what was going to happen. So if I was going to go and try and badmouth him or tell people that he is, you, you know, a sick individual, well, then he was going to make sure that I had other reasons to try and badmouth him. And that's what he was trying to do. And I think that shows or it, um, it demonstrates the character of the individual. You and I couldn't, couldn't think like that, you know, no. uh, hopefully, uh, um, um, most people that we know couldn't think like that, but there, uh, there are people out there that are, um, that manipulative of, uh, everyday situations that, um, yeah, they, they can see themselves as the, the center of the universe around which everything rotates and they just, uh, try to arrange things so that it affects them least and they always benefit from a situation. And that's what he was trying to do. It does when you read about it now and how you go on this journey to gather those people that were affected and abused by this man and direct them in or funnel them towards the police. It feels like a different time. It feels like a completely different era in Irish history Whereas now we are so much more, and I'm not saying completely believing of victims, uh, but at that time, could you describe a little bit of how much resistance there was and how much there victim blaming and uh, victim abuse was a thing at the time that if a, a story such as this arrived, people were hushed up and told to shut up it it just for for our younger listeners uh, i mean that must be part of the fascination with with uh, whereas george gibney is a podcast and as this entire case that we like to believe this would never happen in ireland now what do you say to that the processes that are in place now for people that find themselves in these situations are uh, so much more improved uh, and the environment uh, um, into which these people uh, can uh, contribute is much better. Uh, this was in the time before Childline, this was in the time before um, 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 psychologists that you could go and child psychiatrists that you can go and see or if people were acting out it wasn't a case of we need to get them help. It was just a case that they're bold, you know. So mm. well, there were, there, it was a very different era. And I'll give you an example of what, how different an era it was. Um, when we had a number of victims who had uh, gone to see, and the way I did it was that I encouraged all of the victims to go see a psychologist um, who I had worked with in the past. 
who ironically enough, I had been introduced to by George Gibney, who, um, thought it would be good for the club to have a psychologist on board. He quickly realized after three or four sessions that this psychologist, uh, w- uh, was actually very, very good. I was interested in helping, uh, children. And he was booted out of the club uh, pretty quickly because of the fact that uh, Gibney would have been very afraid that if he got a one-on-one session with some of the uh, athletes within the club, that uh, the athlete would reveal what was going on. So he disappeared, but I never forgot him. And um, I went to see him and I told him what was going on. And I said, well, you're a health professional. I'm not a health professional. I'm a medical student, but I would like uh, for these victims to be able to speak to a health professional. And then you, um, with, uh, in, with your qualified, um, uh, hat on, uh, you can direct them in the correct way. So it's not a case of going to the guards and me saying to the guards, I think this man is a pedophile, go do your work and do your due diligence and research on this man. The victims have to come forward without coercion and without being, um, forced to. So how we managed that was that they went and they spoke uh, to the psychologist, Dr. John Connolly. Um, and he then spoke to them, made sure that they were in a good fit enough, uh, state of mind. Uh, and if he felt that he said, well, the next step, if this is, if you want to take it further is to go and see this person in this uh, guard station and make an appointment with them and they'll be expecting you and they'll know what it's about. So it's like I say, it wasn't that. I drove them on the back of my motorbike or in my car down to the guard station and say, go in there and uh, have a chat to them. It was very, very different. Mm. I think that, uh, is similar, but we knew that the atmosphere or the, the general public would have very, would have huge difficulty believing, uh, that a man in, of his stature would be capable of such heinous crimes. This was around the time of Brendan Smith, uh, who was at that time, uh, the most notorious pedophile in, in, in Ireland. And, um, um, when, uh, Brendan Smith's trial was going on, the, the George Gibney, uh, thing co- coincided. And we said that we wanted to stop George Gibney having anything to do with swimming, uh, whilst the police investigated him. And we, for that. We wanted a show of faith from the swimming association and he was due to run a two day course with age group swimmers over the Christmas period. I always remember the time of the year and these would have been maybe 50 or 60, uh, age groupers from about the age of nine through to 15 or 16. And it was to be held in New Park sports center and myself, a victim. And a husband of a victim met with the swimming association one evening in the Ashling hotel in Dublin. And there were four officials from the Leinster branch of the swimming association who were responsible for the course. And we said, you know, George Gibney is a pedophile. He abused this person here. He abused this man's wife. Um, and we're not making it up. And we want you to cancel the course in six weeks time. You can use excuses like there isn't enough interest or we cannot secure the time uh, for the Leinster branch officials to come uh, and be there. Any excuse at all, uh, you don't have to say we're cancelling it because you're a pedophile. You just don't run it because these are the people that uh, are 
vulnerable in the hands of George Gibney. And all he is doing is he's like having overseeing um, the potential victims uh, for child abuse of the future. I said, you can't put these people on parade in front of him and uh, expect us to stand by and just say nothing about this. So we want this stopped. And they didn't believe a word of it. They ran the course. They had nothing but praise for George Gibney. Uh, they actually went so far as um, uh, going down to the Blackrock Garda station and checking with the guards to make sure that we weren't lying. And then even when the guards told them that the they were conducting an investigation uh, because of complaints that had been made uh, by several individuals into the behavior of George Gibney, they refused to cancel the course. So that's the kind of support that was out there for victims of child sexual abuse. And the pendulum, thank goodness, has swung an awful lot uh, towards a better behavior, better understanding and better care of people that now find themselves in that situation. There's no doubt about it. Gary, I have so many more questions and I really do appreciate you taking the time to patiently answer them uh, here on the podcast. We've got an extended cut of my conversation with Gary O'Toole available on patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad, where I really want to ask about Mark Horgan coming to you with this podcast and this Pandora's box and your reaction when, when that is presented, because there's no doubt about it. You must have known in your heart, Mark, you don't know what you're getting into here. We'll talk about that over on Patreon. If you'd like to come and support our show, I would love you to come over and enjoy some of the stuff that Gary's mentioned, including the Sonia Sullivan episodes on a Wednesday and Marion McKeown talking about America every Friday. <laughs>